Listener Production. Waleed Ali is one of the smartest people on Australian television, as well as sitting at the project desk. I went to the mosque today. I do that every Friday, just like the people in those mosques in Christchurch. I know how quiet, how still, how introspective those people would have been before they were suddenly gunned down. Writing columns for the nine newspapers and hosting many podcasts, Waleed is also pretty busy out of the media spotlight. He's an obsessive Richmond Tigers supporter and used to be their mascot. I actually literally do not remember a day in my life where I wasn't a Richmond supporter. He's the lead guitarist for rock band Robot Child. He's husband to wife Susan Carland and dad to Aisha and Zaid. I guess that's what happens in every family, right? You just sort of naturally reproduce the thing that produced you. My name is Jamila Rizvi and this is The Weekend Briefing. The Weekend List is on its way where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, I want to introduce you to Waleed Ali. Whenever I have a conversation with Waleed, I find myself sitting up a little taller, thinking a little harder and feeling kind of tired after it's over. I hope you enjoy this one. Waleed Ali, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. It's so lovely to see you. It's lovely to be here. Now, you and I are mates, but I realised doing a bit of research for this, there is so much about you I don't know. Really? Yeah. What does that mean? Does that mean that we've we've done this badly? Yeah, possibly. Or, or maybe I'm, I've talked about myself too much. I haven't asked enough questions. I feel mm. like I don't know a lot about you before the last five years or so. So do you know what I would say... I, maybe I should have told you this before we did this podcast. I'm no good at talking about me. I'm not interested. Yeah, that's going to be a problem yeah, today. Yeah, I know. As, I was, <laughs> as it popped into my head, I thought, oh, that's no good. But I'm, I'm uninterested in me Yeah. as a topic of conversation. I think when we talk, it's usually more about like ideas. Yeah. So we skip over the sort of, oh, and how's your family and how, like, which I get is an important part of human interaction. But, you know, there are some people you just go – straight to the interesting stuff. Yeah. I feel like they're the conversations that we have. I quite like that because I think there's that saying that says small minds talk about people and big minds talk about ideas. Yes. I have always considered myself in the small mind category. So clearly you make me a better person. Apparently not. Apparently not. I think about that quote all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's true? I think it is. So I'm trying to figure out how, is it small minds talk about people, average minds talk about events, Yeah. great minds talk about ideas. I, I think, think that's is right. Is that the quote? Yeah, I do think about that a lot. And you know when I think about it most is when I'm thinking about media. Yeah. Because so much media is talking about people. Yes. And the high end of media is talking about events. Yes. Which leaves you with what? So you never get to you, be a great mind in the media. It's very rare you get that level of conversation. It's almost like that has to belong somewhere else. Mm. Either that or it belongs somewhere on an obscure platform that no one will ever find. Like it's that, that that's the only kind of media content that does that, which, which worries me a bit because I wonder sometimes whether or not we're shortchanging our audience. Because mm. I don't think it's that people aren't capable of talking about ideas. I think we just don't do it. It's hard to talk about ideas really quickly as well. Yes. And, and obviously you're the host of the project and I've done that show a few times and one of the things everyone says about that show is it's so fast. Yeah. It's almost over before it's begun yeah. when you're part of it. Yeah. 
not how it feels to the audience, but that's how it feels when you're doing it. Yeah. It's very hard to unpack detailed ideas in yes. 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah, if you're lucky. 30 seconds, oh, that's expensive. Generous. Um, yeah, maybe that's partly why podcasts are becoming more popular. You can kind of luxuriate with the ideas that are being discussed on any given day. You, know, you see how we've done it again? We've completely gone... We have not talked about you at all, and I'm going to make you talk about you. Fine, but but I'm going to promise you. See, I didn't even get the because Okay, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I'm just warning you, I'm not going to promise that it's going to be worth your while. (laughs) It's just not interesting to you because you already know about it. I want to start with your upbringing. So what led you to this point where you're more interested in ideas than people and events? What was your childhood like? Maybe the starting point for that is to know that I'm very young in my family. So I have one brother yeah, who is 10 years and three days older than me. Wow. And then mum and dad. I've actually, weirdly, I've never done the maths. Mum would have been like early 40s when she had me. So yeah. I'm I'm young. And when I see my extended family who are almost all in Egypt, I feel like my cousin's kids are actually my cousins. Yeah, you know what right. I mean? So I'm almost a generation out of whack. So the reason that's relevant is I guess from a very young age, I was always surrounded by a level of conversation that was well beyond my years just because that's where everybody else was. Yeah. And so I didn't really have a, a choice in that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And then there was the emphasis on education, I suppose. So both my parents are hugely into education. My dad was sort of in the sciences. So he was really a physicist, became an engineer. I think he came out to Australia and did his master's at Monash in, I think, in physics um, and became a school teacher. Mum was a school teacher. So I was kind of all surrounded by education. And I just remember as a little kid sitting at the dinner table and watching my brother, who, remember, is 10 years older than me, so he's kind of like another parent, Yeah. and my parents having these debates about things. And that's just what I thought happened. So I guess... Uh, we never, it was never a gossipy household. You know what I mean? That sounds pejorative. What I mean is it was never a household where we sat down and said, oh, did you hear about X doing Y? That just wasn't the pattern of conversation, I guess. So it might just be what I was marinating in. I think about that. And I remember the number of days I would come home from school and my mum would say, what's the gossip? Or have you got any gossip for me? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, And it was the first thing that we talk about. And I don't think, uh, I don't want to paint my mum in a bad light. And she's a wonderful person, but I think it was, that was her way of saying, what's everyone talking about? Yeah. You know, outside the house, because I've been in the house for most of the day. Has the way you were raised with you being a young person and being treated as an equal in those conversations and having access to those grown-up conversations, has that influenced how you raise your own kids? Not deliberately. Like, I haven't set out to do it, but if you think about it, it inevitably must, right? Like, obviously, you know my wife, you're good friends with Susan, and she's an academic. So we do often converse in that kind of thing. And so I guess, again, it comes back to that sort of marinating thing, right? And if that's just the environment kids grow up in, they just sort of feel at ease in those yeah. sorts of conversations. So I wouldn't say it was a policy decision. <laughs> like it's not like we sat down and <laughs> said already parenting decisions policy. Decisions. Well, you know what I mean. It wasn't a matter of principle. We sat down yeah. with a piece of paper and said, "Okay, here's how we're going." To do that. It wasn't like that. Yeah. But I think it just sort of naturally emanates from. I mean, Susan and I, when we talk, probably a lot of it does operate at that level. I guess that's what happens in every family, right? You just sort of naturally reproduce the thing that produced you. you 
So how did you end up going into the media? Was the media a career that you wanted since you were a kid or was it more a accident? The answer to did I want it as a kid is probably yes for a very brief period. I remember in about grade five, I decided I wanted to be a journalist for some yep. reason. And I remember the way I was going to do this was there was a basketball game I was really excited about. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar came out to Australia and played whatever. And I decided I would sit at home and watch the game on a videotape and then write a report, (laughs) Um, which is really weird. But I remember that as a really fleeting moment. Like by the time I'm in grade six or year seven, journalism's not, I don't even think about it. Mm. And uh, I get towards the end of high school and it's really law and that's where I end up. I do engineering law and I end up becoming a lawyer. And so that's kind of what that was. So I want to say, and I do think it is true to say that I end up in media by accident, but then I know someone who knows me well will say, but hang on, you did talk about it when you were little, but I just don't remember that as being a main driver. That was kind of a moment rather than a thing. And then there were moments as I was going through law school, when I was thinking about Oh, is media an option? But I think that was inspired as much as anything by the fact that I hadn't sorted myself out and got the clerkships that you're meant to get in order to get a job in the law. <laughs> and then I got offered a job in the law and then that that was that. So to me, it was an accident. Really, it happened because at the time I was a lawyer, I ended up just taking an interest in certain things and writing about them. And it was all about writing to me. It was all print. Yeah. I wasn't really interested in broadcast. I never thought about broadcast. And then eventually I started getting things published and newspapers and that was such a thrill. And and then out of that, John Fain, who hosted for years and years and years, for a couple of decades, the morning show on ABC local radio in Melbourne, had obviously been reading some of the stuff I wrote and he invited me to come in and co-host a segment with him, which I did. And then eventually they asked me to fill in for him. And then out of that sort of TV kind of ended up growing. So it was all it just happened because someone would say, hey, do you want to do this? And I just went, sure. And I went and had a crack at it and then it, it turned into something. But I, I never imagined myself having a full-time media job. Do you think you bring that kind of legally trained analytical mind to media? You bring the mind you've got, right? <laughs> so if that's the mind I've got through my my education and then my work, then yeah. I suppose I do. I don't turn up to work every day and go, all right, let's put my lawyer head on. Like it's just that I guess that's just the way I think. One thing I would say that I really do value about the law is that ability to think about and then even mount an argument that might not have been your position. Yeah. And I think that's really important in media. And I think it's a dying art, unfortunately, in media where. It's one thing to have a view about something, but it's another thing to have a view when you have a really good grasp of the view that you oppose. Mm. What I worry about is far too much media now proceeds without even really having a good grasp of the opposing argument. Mm. It either takes the very worst version of that argument and then lampoons it, Mm. or it doesn't even bother understanding it at all. I think that's why we're ending up with such polarised media, it's not that people never had positions, but I feel like, maybe this is nostalgic, but I feel like we used to be better at understanding the positions we disagreed with. We've gone as long as you're allowed to go before talking about COVID. (laughs) There was sort of a broad acceptance for a period that Australian governments were doing a pretty good job. Yeah. 
And I think some of that still remains. But we're now almost 18 months on from the outset of the pandemic. How do you think governments are going now? So I think it depends a little bit on what the time frame of your report card is. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I would say if you are judging performance over the journey from February, March last year to now, I think it's still a very good mark. Mm. But I think if you look at what's happening right now, then I think there's far more room to be critical. But here, and, and by the way, I think people won't believe me when I say this, but I actually say this with great reservation because I don't like making these sorts of calls. I think it mostly now has to fall on the federal government rather than the state governments. The caveat that has to sit around that is I actually think the federal government's performance last year was really strong. I know there is the narrative, which has something to it, that actually the states did all the hard work and did the health stuff. That's only partially true. I mean, the feds did close the the national border really quickly, and that's probably the single biggest thing that you could do to affect the health response. And then the other thing is because of the way our constitution worked, they looked after the money and they did that pretty well. There's arguments about JobKeeper, et cetera, et cetera, but even some of the doomsday scenarios that were prophesized when JobKeeper was withdrawn haven't come true. Mm. The feds genuinely have an argument with when they want to stand up and say, we've managed this really well and we've managed this in ways that are better than our opponents will acknowledge. And I think they're, they're on fairly strong ground to say that. But I think the problem is we've moved into a new phase now where I do not understand the hesitancy on hotel quarantine. I don't get it. You would understand the, the mechanics of behind-the-scenes politics better than me. I, when you say the hesitancy, the hesitancy to build an alternative? Yeah, to, to acknowledge that it's no, the task has changed and hotel quarantine's not really up for it, mm. but up to it. We're going to be needing some level of quarantine for quite a while, even on the way the government talks about the effect of vaccination, that mm. it, it won't stop everything. So we're going to need that. So given the cost of the outbreaks... It doesn't make financial sense not to be moving forward. There's no urgency in it. Because I can't even understand the political... You know, sometimes you see a government make a decision that mystifies you in a policy sense, but you can at least understand the politics. I don't even get the politics of this. Do you get it? No, I think that's a fair question. For me, it's about a short-term view that says, we don't think we're going to need this for a really long time. That's the only way you can justify... Yeah. But do they think that? Perhaps. But everything they've said doesn't suggest that. I don't think it's politically advantageous because I think it's quite politically popular, the idea of building permanent yes. quarantine facilities. Money's not an issue. No, it's, a, it's a, certainly a confusing one. I want to force you to talk about yourself again. Oh, gosh, okay. Can you tell me... Why you barrack for a terrible football team? I don't. I barrack for a great football team. Yeah, I see. That is incorrect. Is it? How did you come... To barrack for Richmond? To barrack for Richmond. Um, so, well, I barrack for a lot of football teams. You're talking about the AFL. We should be clear. All right, that's fair. You have Let's talk about audience. the AFL. This is my brother's fault. So my okay. brother, as I mentioned, 10 years older than me. So my parents migrated from Egypt, so they didn't really follow footy. My brother got into footy as a kid growing yeah. up here. And when he was little, he used to barrack for Peter McKenna who was a Collingwood full forward. Yeah. But he was Adam and he didn't barrack for Collingwood. He only barracked for <laughs> The Peter individual. McKen- yes. And he one day he was talking to this girl in our street whose name was Mandy, who I think he quite fancied because she was a 
few years older than him and he was six and he was a bit smitten. And he was telling her that he married for Peter McKenna and she said, well, that, you can't do that. You've got, to, you've got to have a team. Yeah. He said, well, oh, okay, who should I barrack for, Mandy? And Mandy was a Richmond supporter. And this would have been about 1974. Richmond have just won back-to-back flags. She said, well, you should barrack for Richmond. I said, oh, why Richmond? Well, they are the best team. They've just won back-to-back flags. <laughs> oh, okay, Mandy. So he became a Richmond supporter at that point. And by the time I arrived, it was... You have to do what your big brother does. Yeah. It was just, it was, I actually literally do not remember a day in my life where I wasn't a Richmond supporter. Like I don't have a pre-Richmond consciousness. It's just, you're just born into it. Pre-Richmond consciousness. (laughs) It is incredibly tribal and inherited, right? Like I got married. I didn't change my name. I did not change my football team. And that meant when my husband and I had a child, we were in this terrible predicament of whose football team won. And we ended up selling it off in the marriage vows. Really? When I was still pregnant. Sorry, how do, I need to hear this story. How did you... Well, I was pregnant when we got married. Yeah. We hadn't found out the sex of the baby. Yeah. And so we, we just bet the football teams on the sex of the baby. And oh. we said, if it's a boy, Carlton, if it's a girl, Collingwood, and I lost. It's very sad. Wow. So that what's interesting about that was that you were prepared to take the gamble. Only because I didn't think I'd win the argument. Right. So I took the. So it was strategic. Took the gamble because yeah. at least gave me fifty fifty. Yeah, odds, yeah, right. Which you know isn't bad in a situation where I think I eventually would have been worn down. Yeah. Because Jeremy's dedication to taking Ruffy to every football game ever. Oh uh, yeah. Probably would that's, have. That's true. Beaten mine. Yeah. What other ways there to resolve it really? But I do want to talk about footy more seriously yeah. because the AFL has faced some pretty negative commentary in the past few years yeah. on a range of factors. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen, but just recently there's a new book out called The Boys Club. I've seen the book, but I haven't read it. Yeah. yeah. I've heard it takes a few swipes. Yeah. Michael Warner covers a whole range of issues in the AFL from different angles. But yeah. one of the things he points to is that the AFL as an institution has too much influence. That's interesting. In Melbourne. Yeah. And I wanted to know what you think of that. Being on TV every night yeah. when football of all codes occasionally comes up, mm. more than occasionally, and you see the reaction of audiences, Yeah, does football have too much power? My inclination is to say the biggest problem isn't that whether it's too big. The biggest problem is the way that it, and by that I mean not just the AFL but the whole industry of football, is run. So, for example... It becomes too big and that becomes a problem if there are conflicts of interest all over the place. And I think that's one of footy's big problems. Mm. So you have people who are, I mean, you know, the Eddie Maguire example is the classic, but he's actually not the only one and this is the point where you're the president of a football club and you're a commentator with however many media outlets and whatever and you're helping negotiate like stadium deals or whatever. There needs to be a separation of powers there. You choose which one? And it's not. And the problem is what you always get when you raise this is, but I can do these jobs and I can do them. It, no, it's not about you as a person. It's about the roles themselves, mm. and the whole idea of a conflict of interest is preventative, right? It's to say you you should not ever be in a position. No where, person can do that. Fairly. Yes, you might be lucky in that the conflict never arises in fact. But the point is, you're never meant to get to that point, right? If the AFL and footy is going to be as big as it is, then the governance, the principles, the rules that surround it have to be really, really pristine, and they're not. Waleed, I have thoroughly failed in getting you to talk about yourself, which means you're going to have to come back. Uh, Okay, but but it'll be the same. 
Thank you nonetheless for an excellent morning of conversation. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. You can find Waleed on the project desk most nights of the week. And you can also listen to his podcast, So Now What?, which explores what Australia's future might look like as we step out of the shadow of coronavirus. Don't go away. The Weekend List is up next with Tate McGregor. Tate McGregor joins us now for The Weekend List so that we can talk to you all about what you can see, watch, do, listen, cook this weekend. Tate, what have you got for us? I want to hit you up with the first thing that I've been watching. It's Luca, the new Disney Pixar film that came out last week. It is obviously very heartwarming to watch. It's about a young sea monster called Luca who changes into a human when he steps out of the ocean and onto land. As you do. As you do. And he meets this other young sea monster and they both go on these land adventures together. But in amongst it, there's almost this queer-coded story about otherness, acceptance, and almost coming out is a way that people have been reading into this movie, Jamila. It's something that I would definitely recommend. It's set in the Italian Riviera, sort of makes you really want to go travelling at the end of it, but it's just overwhelmingly beautiful. This is my dad. Why do you think he kills with those? Anything that swims. Ah. Your life is so much cooler than mine. There's a million things you think you can't do. You need is a chance to try. That sounds totally random, but quite sweet. It is. It's very random, very sweet. What have you been reading, Jamila? I have just finished The Other Half of You by Michael Mohammed Ahmed. Michael Mohammed Ahmed is a really well known Australian writer. He wrote The Lebs, which was shortlisted for The Miles Franklin, which is probably the one he's best known for. In this book, he centres the story around Barney Adam, who has known all his life what was expected of him, which is to marry the right kind of girl and to make his family proud. But Barney wants more than that. He wants to make his own decisions and Being the first in his Australian Muslim family to go to university, he can see more possibilities and different ways of living. And of course, that creates some conflict. Years later, Barney writes a story to his son, Khalil, telling him about the choices he made for his son's own benefit and for his future. And it's such a beautiful depiction of fatherhood and the relationship between father and son. And I think a really beautiful, complex, nuanced, but also positive portrayal of Muslim fatherhood, which too often in Australia we don't get. I'll definitely put that on the reading list. And what have you got for us to listen to, Tate? Okay, Kat and Kamel, they're two girls from Western Sydney, have just dropped their debut EP. It's called Life of Mine, and it's an R&B-leaning pop anthemic collection of songs that talk about, you know, reckless abandon, toxicity in relationships, relationship drama, even the environmental crisis. There's a bit in there for everybody. You might already know their singles, Dumb Shit, Dramatic, Jorge. It's a continuation from these just rambunctious girls who you need to watch. They're signed to EMI, so they're on the same label as the likes of Troye Sivan, Odette, 
five seconds of summer, in with the big leagues. And if you get in now, you can call yourself an original fan. So that's Cat and Carmel's Life of Mine EP out yesterday. If you cover my mouth with your hands, try to silence me, I'll scream out as loud as I can. Shoot and bite the hand that feeds me, but you're not the man. And when I stick it to you, we'll see who's I am going to get that going ASAP. It sounds really good. And you are always my pathway to excellent new music, Tate. (laughs) Thank you for that. To round us out, I have another Netflix recommendation, folks. And that is because my life is watching Netflix in bed at night when I can't fall asleep. I want to recommend Stateless, which, if I'm honest, isn't going to help you fall asleep. It's a six-episode series. It's inspired by true stories from Australian immigration detention, but it is told as a fictional tale, it, I think, will give you an amazing insight into the experience of millions of displaced people around the world who are seeking asylum. It is incredibly beautifully told. The focus is on a fictionalised woman called Sophie Werner, who is an airline hostess who is having some mental health issues and really struggling in her life she ends up being accidentally imprisoned in an Australian immigration detention camp in the middle of the desert, just like a real-life Australian citizen, Mm. Cornelia Rao, was. So this is the story of her, but it's also the story of a whole lot of different people who are living in the same detention centre and their experiences, as well as the experiences of the guards at that detention centre and the guards' families. It has some seriously impressive actors and actresses in it, Asha Ketty is part of the lineup. Love. Jay Courtney is part of the lineup. Kate Blanchett is in the series. This is a real winner and it is incredibly impactful and it'll stay with you for a long time. You're stuck here indefinitely unless you tell me who you really are. They will want to know why someone who looks just like them trapped in a place like this. There's better ways of doing it. You be my guest. It's your job. Just do it. That's it for the weekend briefing. Thank you so much for being with us. We really do enjoy and appreciate your company. And I hope that you are loving these candid, honest conversations with the humans behind the headlines. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode of the weekend briefing or indeed the weekday briefing, then you should subscribe in the listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not leave us a cheeky rating and a review? And by cheeky, I mean five stars. Thank you very much, everybody. We will be back on Monday morning with Annika and Tom with the latest headlines right to your headphones. Bye. Listener.